This is the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Hello, friends, and welcome to a Wednesday Wisdom episode of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. And if you're wondering why the J, the answer is I am not a bagpipe player. And if that joke doesn't make any sense, I encourage you to check out episode zero where I explain that joke as well as the purpose of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast. But as to today's episode, our Wednesday Wisdom episodes are this. I am sharing the audio of my sermons from the church I pastor, Evident Grace Fellowship in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as well as sermons from churches I have pastored prior, as well as sermons that I've preached at other places. And I'm sharing them with you for this reason. My sermons are usually not too long. They're between 30 and 40 minutes long. And by sharing them with you, it gives you a chance for some spiritual encouragement midweek. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging and encouraging, like I said. And if it is, would you please send me a note at uh, gordon at jgordonnuckin.com or maybe even share this sermon online, Facebook, or on your Instagram story. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to the sermon. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. When I have the privilege of asking you about your prayer life or when I have the honesty of examining my heart about mine, I think what happens is we're very quick to attribute our prayer life to our personality. So we might say things like, well, I just have a really difficult time concentrating in silence. And I understand that. If you give me five minutes of stillness, I go to sleep. If I'm in the parent pickup line to pick up my kids, I have to set an alarm because they knock on the door and I'm asleep when I'm sitting there. And so I understand that. But I, I think sometimes we shortchange ourselves when we equate, well, my personality is this and my prayer life is this. Because I know you guys, you have the ability to focus on things for immense amount of time. You do. I know some of you can do an hour of yoga. I know you can do eight hours of video games. You can run for four hours. I mean, we can do anything we really, really want in any stage for any length of period of time. Granted, prayer is different. It's jarring. It wakes us up from the world that we've been in into the world that we wish and into the presence of God. I think it's really this. I, I will attribute personality and attention spans. I will uh, attribute that to the effectiveness in our prayer life a little bit. But I think sometimes your prayer life comes down to this. If you believe that God was working in your prayers, you would pray more often. If you believe that I'm praying this and as a result, this is happening. Or God is doing this and I'm praying and therefore I'm a part of it. I think we would be much more akin to pray more often. 
If you feel like something's actually happening, if it's worthwhile, it's effective, your prayer life would would become more vibrant. Uh, Take, for example, the story that we know of Abraham. Uh, Abraham is older in life, and he and Sarah wanted to have kids, and they couldn't have kids. And so way late in life, God shows up and says, hey, Abraham, you're going to have a kid, and I'm going to be your God. In fact, nations are going to come from you. And Abraham, by faith, said, I believe that. And God said, hey, listen, that's righteous right there. So Abraham goes to his wife. He's like, Sarah, good news. We're going to have a kid. And Sarah goes, I'm old. No baby's coming out of this body anytime soon. Now, I don't blame Sarah at all. I'm a pragmatist. I'm practical a lot of times. So she looks at this and like, I can tell you what works and what doesn't work. A baby's probably not going to work in this situation. Because listen, God said, I'm going to do this. And Abraham says, hey, I can see me being a part of that. And God said, hey, I'm going to do this. And Sarah said, I don't see me being a part of that, right? It makes sense. It's hard for her to get in line with what God said he was going to do because she just couldn't see herself to be part of it. Now let's fast forward a little bit to the beginning of the Christmas story. Very similar circumstance. There's a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And what did they want? They wanted a baby. And it was late in life. Things weren't working as they used to work. And so Zechariah had prayed. He's like, God, God, God. And this Zechariah is all about prayer. Zechariah and Elizabeth. I love the story. And he's like, God, give us a baby. Now here's a man who could see it a little bit, right? They were older. He knows the story of Abraham. He's a priest. But God, would, would you do that, though? Would you do it? Would you give us a baby? And God hadn't yet. So it became a, a festival, and a, a, a worship service, and all the people are gathered, and Zachariah's job was to go into the temple and light the incense, hopefully commune with God and come back and share with the people, right? So Zachariah does that. He goes in, leaves all the people. He goes in to light the incense, and Gabriel himself shows up. I mean, the angel of angels shows up, and he says, God's heard your prayer. You're going to have a baby with Elizabeth. And Zachariah goes, how do I know this is going to be true? I mean, Gabriel himself has said, hey, I'm here, and you prayed. And Zachariah, I get it, right? I get it. He falters. Like, ah, I just don't know if I see you doing it. And so... Gabriel says, did you know that I was sent from God? Like, I was in the presence of God a second ago. I left. I'm a sentinel. I was sent to you. And since you didn't believe, you're mute. You will not speak again until this promise is fulfilled. No speaking for you until you see this baby. Now, Maybe the greatest nine months of Elizabeth's life. I don't know. But she got silence like she's never had. But Zachariah's got a job to do. So he comes out and can't speak, and the people get it. Something has happened. Now, when Zachariah looked at his circumstance, all he could see was lack and limitation. Lack and limitation. I can't do it, and God, I think you're limited to do it, right? And how many of our prayers are hindered by that? We see personal lack, and we see the limitation of God. Now, Gabriel doesn't see that, though. Gabriel sees an opportunity for the might and power of God to be displayed. Because God's not going to pick 
Someone who can do all this already. He's picking someone who can't do anything. God wants to display his power. That is so much of the life of our prayers, isn't it? We see personal lack and we see God's limitation. But God sees opportunities for his power to be displayed. So here's where we're going. Here's our big idea. We're going to talk about God's work in your prayers. That's what we want to talk about. I want you to leave here enthusiastic that God's going to work in your prayers. And I'm sorry, I only have two points today. I could only do it. I can't get three. My dad's disappointed. Here we go. Prayer is about seeing God at work. When you're praying, it's about seeing God doing things. That's what it is. And prayer is also about seeing your life as part of God's work. So when you pray, you're like, God, I want to see you do things. And that second part is, I want to see you do things in me. I want what I'm doing to be a part of what you're doing, okay? Now, we need a little bit more context. Hang in there with me. Let me give you a little bit more context. I'm going to read for you Luke 1, 57 through 66. That's going to get us up there. We're going to hop through this quickly, but we really need the groundwork if we're going to see Zacharias' prayer. So, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to us, to her, and they rejoiced with her. Stop there. What's the story when Mary and Joseph give birth to Jesus? Excuse me. When Mary gives birth to Jesus and Joseph's hanging out. What's the story for, their, for them? Solitude. Abandonment. No one wanted that. Elizabeth is just as much of a miracle. She was late in life. She had never had children. But by God's grace, she's surrounded by family. They're excited. They want to come see the baby. They want to, they're probably a little concerned, hoping that Elizabeth's going to deliver okay. But they want to gather around. So it's a wonderful moment. It's a family moment. Everyone's there. Verse 59. And they had the baby, and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. Now, circumcision commanded on the eighth day. That's when the family said, we are of the people of God, and we trust and claim God's promises for our children. So we're going to circumcise this child as commanded on the eighth day because we believe that God's going to work in our child just as much as he's worked in my life, right? And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Very traditional. I'm Zechariah. He's firstborn. He's Zechariah. And the mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Now, Zechariah can't speak. Hasn't been able to speak for nine months. And now his wife doesn't want to name the baby after the father. Suspicions are raised. Who is John? Why are you not naming this baby after his dad? And the man can't speak. And they, made, and they said to her, none of your relatives are called by this name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a tablet. So he sent a text and he said, his name is John. He told everybody, his name is John. Everybody chill out. The plan is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. The man wakes up, can speak, and just starts praising God. He saw the promise fulfilled, and he could speak. Not only that, he believed that the promise was fulfilled. He believed it. You know, one month in, two months in, three months in, when Elizabeth was showing, he's like, hey, God, I believe now. I believe this baby's coming. But God waited until that baby was born, and he claimed that kid as John. Deviating from family traditions, maybe putting them under some suspicion of scandal, 
But when he said that baby's name is John, he could speak. And what's the first thing he did? He blessed and praised God. Verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with the child. The hand of the Lord was with the child from birth. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, and that's where we're going to stop. Now, God is at work. Miraculously, it's clear that God is doing something. They were barren, couldn't have children. Zechariah was muted. They see the miracle. They're naming him John. Zechariah believes in it, and the whole crowd knows God is doing something. Crowd, here's our little bit here. Here's a little bit fun for you. It's free of charge. It's not in the two points. When we begin to recognize that God's doing things in each other's lives, it excites the people. When I look at your life and I say, God has done this, I can see it. I can recognize God's work in your life. When you recognize God's work in other people's lives, it excites the people of God. When we quit speaking that way, it discourages the people of God. God is clearly at work. It may have different pictures. It may be more bright. It might be more clear. It might be more subtle, more muted. But when God is at work and we praise God for what's going on in each other's lives, then God excites us. And all of a sudden, we begin talking about what God might do next. All right, let's talk about prayer, because what's next is Zachariah's prayer. He's praising, prophesying, and praying, and we need to see what's going on. Now, let me be careful here. I want to make sure I'm faithful to the Scriptures. None of you are Zachariah, none of you are Elizabeth, and none of your kids are John, okay? This is a good point here, and you need to understand it. What we can see, though, are some principles about prayer that I think are going to be helpful for us. So, prayer is about seeing God at work. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, interesting. He's got a baby. God has promised this baby. It's been a miracle. And the first thing he does is go, hey, God, you've always been faithful to your people. My prayers typically aren't like that. Now, look, don't get me wrong. If something good happens and you go, hey, dear God, thank you for this good thing, good for you. But what helps Zechariah is he sees the larger picture of his life and what God is doing. And he starts with, God, you have been faithful. You might sit down and you might want to praise God for something. You might want to praise God for a reconciled relationship. You might want to praise God for having a week of good prayers. You might want to praise God for anything. He started with, you've been faithful, and I encourage you to start the same way. God, you have visited and redeemed your people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Anytime you see horn, I can't say that word for some reason today. Horn, anytime you see that today, that word really means strength. Strength. He says, God, you've raised up the strength of your salvation in the house of David. When did God do that? Zachariah's not in the house of David. Elizabeth's not in the house of David. John's not in the house of David. When did God raise up the strength of salvation in the house of David? Zechariah so trusts that his son John is going to lead to Jesus the Savior, he's already thanking God for it. He's already thanking God for something he hasn't done. He trusted that surely. And what that is, that's when you know a promise of God, any promise of God, and you thank God for it, whether it's happened to it or not. 
God, you'll never leave me or forsake me. You go ahead and thank God for it. God, I know that your mercy is new every morning and you pray it at night because you know it's going to be there in the morning. You see what Zachariah's prayers are doing? He's looking back and saying, you've already done this for your people and now you're bringing about the Savior. Verse 70, and as he spoke by the mouth of the prophets old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Who were the enemies of the people of God when Zechariah was alive? Well, the first enemy was the Romans, because they occupied and ran Israel. The second one was a bunch of traitorous Israelites who would go and, and collect taxes and extort the people of God. The third would have been all the neighboring countries around them that hated the people of God. And the fourth would have been Satan himself. And so his son's been born. Jesus is coming later. But Zacharias already said, you have rescued us from our oppressors, the traitors in our midst, the foreigners who hate us, and Satan himself. He's so assured that Jesus Christ is going to crush their enemies. He's thanking them in advance, thanking God in advance. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all of our days. He's got to listen. He's saying, God, you promised to Abraham that you'd make a people, and you've done it. And now you're going to bring your Savior. And you know what we're going to be able to do? I'm going to be able to serve God like I've never, ever been able to serve God, and I'm going to do it in holiness and fear until eternity. God, you're going to make me and your people more holy than we'd ever been. Have you ever prayed like that? Like, God, I'm so excited. You're going to enable me to obey like I've never obeyed before. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to bring you to the awareness of what our prayers could be. God, I'm going to obey greater than I've ever obeyed because of what you're doing. He sees God at work. Now, that's a lot of data. So for you who are taking notes, let, let, me, let me boil that down to the five things that just happened in this prayer. I'm sorry. I think you can handle five points, okay? Here's what just happened in Zechariah's prayer, and I'll send it out to you in the notes tomorrow. The first thing Zechariah did was he prayed. He said, God, you keep your promises. You keep your promises. You've made a bunch of them to me. Going all the way back to Abraham, you said you were going to make a people. You said you were going to save us. We go all the way back to Genesis. You said you were going to send a Savior. You did. You keep your promises. Two, he thanks God for giving him Jesus. You've sent the Savior. You've sent the Savior. Three, like God, you have delivered us from our enemies. Four, I can serve you without fear. And five, I can obey it to eternity. So let's make this really practical. This is what your prayer might look like, okay? This is a decent pattern. It really is. You don't sin if you don't follow this pattern, but it's a really decent pattern, okay? So that means tomorrow morning you have your quiet time. You get up a couple minutes early. Maybe the kids are asleep. Maybe tomorrow night, whenever your groove is for having your quiet time, if you've never had one, you pick some time. You're like, hey, tonight before I go to bed, I'm going to try to pray, okay? And so if we were to follow this pattern, we would do this. We'd say, hey, God, you have always been faithful to your people. You were faithful to the people in the church, excuse me, in the, in the Old Testament. You were faithful to the people in the New Testament. And you've been faithful to the people at this church. You've always been faithful. Thank you so much. And finally, you have given us Jesus. You've given us Jesus. And because of Jesus, I'm forgiven. And my family is forgiven. And all my friends at church, we're forgiven. 
And you know what, Father? We're rescued. I don't have to fear the, the government. I don't have to fear, fear the 2020 election. I don't have to fear any foreign power. And I don't have to fear Satan ever again. Satan can't touch me. And Father, you know what all that means, Father? Enable me to obey like I've never obeyed. Tomorrow, make me more righteous. Make me more good. Because you know what? I know I have the hope of heaven to come. That's what that prayer might look like. And I'll be honest with you. If any of us, if you could grow in prayers like that, if your pastor could get more comfortable with that, our prayers would be so much more powerful. They really would. Why? We're tapping into the whole picture of God's redemption. We're trusting that the Savior's life, excuse me, the Savior's work is doing not just work in our life, but in the life of others around us, and is having a worldwide eternal impact. That's praying about God's work. Haven't started talking about all the stuff in our lives yet, right? Prayers about praying about God's work. Let's talk about prayers about seeing your life as part of God's work. Now listen, it would be miserable for any of us in our days to finish our life and feel like God had not worked in our lives. And I think it's our fear sometimes. We're like, God, I, mean, I don't know if my life's making any impact in the world at all. Father, I don't know if my life's making any impact at the kingdom. I don't know if the things I do at church really have any impact. Those are the fears that we wrestle with. Maybe you don't articulate them. Maybe you're not even aware that you're thinking them, but they often just hold us down. And we fear that God's not working in our life. God works in the life of every one of his children. Not one of his children are wasted before God's redemptive plan. Let's see how Zachariah saw it. So he, in this prayer, he speaks to his newborn son. Well, I guess at this point in time, he's good eight days. He speaks to his son. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare, excuse me, to prepare his ways. Zechariah and Elizabeth had been promised that their son John the Baptist was the promised prophet that would prepare the way for the Savior. When you look at the Old Testament, the promises were a Savior, but they promised also, hey, a new prophet's going to come, and that prophet is going to make things ready for Jesus. Now, a little context again. God has not spoken to his people for 400 years at this point in time. Israel and the prophets have been silent. God had not sent a prophet to come and prophesy to them for 400 years. And Zechariah is saying, you, son, are breaking that. You're breaking the silence between God and his people. You, son, you, my eight-day-old son, you're going to be the prophet who comes and prepare the way for the Savior. Verse 77. And you're going to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. The people don't know how to be saved. And people don't know what to do when the Savior shows up. They have no idea. No idea. You, son, you, my eight-day-old son, you're going to give people the knowledge they need to be saved. You're going to give them the knowledge that's needed when the Savior arrives. Verse 78, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. He's saying, listen, there's a lot of people who sit in darkness. That's not just the people of God. The world sat in darkness at this point in time. And he's like, hey, son, you are going to make the way for Jesus. You're going to let the people of God know how to cry at salvation. And the world's darkness is going to be lifted because God has chosen you 
to make the way for Jesus. Let me remind you, none of you are parenting John the Baptist, nor a prophet of equal weight at this point in time. So this is not your prayer. But there's some fantastic principles about prayer in here. You're not going to sin if you don't pray in this way, but I think your prayers might be empowered. So how do we pray for our lives to be a part of God's work in light of this? Three simple ways. Zachariah is trusting God has promised something. What has God promised you? In your day-to-day life of faith, what promises do you rely on? Or do you not rely on any? In your day-to-day life, are you reminding yourselves of God saying things to you that are brand new? I'll just use the ones I used a minute ago. Do you trust that every morning God's got brand new grace for you? Do you trust that you have not exhausted all of his forgiveness? You can go to bed sinning and wake up forgiven. Do you trust that you cannot wear out his grace for you? Do you trust and believe that God will never leave you nor forsake you? The only time we think about that promise is when life is a mess. When life is a wreck, that's the only time I ever think about that promise. That's fair. So when your life is flat out shattered, ugly to you and the world and everything is a mess, ugly to your friends, to your family, and to the public. Do you believe that God is going to say, but I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going to make you walk through a valley like you've never walked through, but I'm not leaving you. Friends, we've got to know the promises of God if we're going to pray the promises of God. The scriptures are full of promises intended to encourage you. So one, when you pray, if you want your life to be a part of God's work in your prayers, start with the promises of God. Second, you got to rest in grace in everything you do. What was John the Baptist doing? He was coming to bring about the knowledge of salvation to the people of God. So resting in grace means that when you want to be a part of God's work, first of all, know this, we're going to fail, we're going to stumble, and we're not going to always do it well. And we are going to succeed. Every one of those needs grace. When you sin and when you fail and when you're arrogant or when you're deceptive or when you're whatever your sin is, you got to know, okay, I got to rest in grace for this. But when you obey and when you serve and when you trust God's grace, all that you need God's grace for. You do. And so your prayers are like, Father, 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 I'm going to trust that you're not going to leave me. You're not going to forsake me. Your grace is new every morning. Today I want to obey. Today I want to serve. I need your grace to do that. What was the promise here for our assurance of pardon? Romans 1, 16. That I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation. Everything you do is done by the power of the gospel. And third, and third, mission. What did he say? Son, you're coming to remove darkness. Christ is going to come and shine light on this world. Those are the same missions given to you and into the church. God has said that it is the mission of the church to proclaim the goodness and the gospel to the whole council, earthly and heavenly. That's the plan. How is the world and the spiritual realm going to hear of Jesus Christ? You. You. 
Now, that might be terrifying. It might make you scared. But remember what we just looked at. We talked about the dependence upon grace and the trust of the promises of God. You're not going into that alone. You're not going into that on your own skill set or your own strength. God wants to, has declared and ordained that you will take light into dark places. John the Baptist got to do it bringing about Jesus. We get to do it now proclaiming his finished work. The mission of this church and any other church that proclaims Jesus by faith alone is to go into those dark places and shine the light. Your prayers become empowered when you see your life and your family's life and the church's life as part of that. So it means doing a prayer like this is like, Father, I know your promises. I know your promise. You're never going to leave me. You're never going to forsake me. Your grace is brand new for me this morning. So I try to go out and serve my family, and I try to go out and serve in the world, and I try to serve in the church. Father, I need grace for that because I'm going to fail. But Father, use me to shine light in dark places. Every one of those is a promise to you. Zachariah was living it out. Now we live it out as the church. Let's begin a, a slow descent, friends. If you're worshiping with us um, for the first time or second or third, I, I do try to close with a truth application and action. A truth is a, an answer or an explanation of the big picture question or the big idea. An application is a live like this this week, and then I try to give you an action. Uh, let's do that, and then i got a small story for you. Truth. Our prayers become more powerful and more intimate when we believe that God is at work in this world and in our life. Now, personalize that. When I send this to you this week in the, the Sunday recap, I want you to rewrite it personally somewhere in a journal or wherever you do your quiet time. My prayers become more powerful and more intimate when I believe that God is at work in this world and in my life. Don't shortchange this with the we and the, per, and the, the, personal pro, I mean the pronoun for us in plural. Make it personal. You will become more intimate with God if you believe that he uses you to accomplish his will. You will become more intimate if you believe that God uses you and us to accomplish his will. And you need to be slightly rebuked at this point in time if you're convinced that God's not going to use you. Because he is. Because he promised he would. And he's going to. Let's try an application. Live knowing that God joyfully and purposely uses your prayers to bring about his will and work. On purpose, God has decided that the way he's going to make something happen is you're going to pray, and that's the way he's going to use it. That's it. So, God decided before eternity began that mercy was going to be shown to the people of the Brisbane Center. He decided that whole thing. He decided the plot of every one of those people's lives all the way up to them holding a tray and receiving baked ziti yesterday. He decided that whole plan. And then a part of that plan was that he decided before creation that he would move in our deacons to have a heart to serve people. And then he decided that he would use the prayers of this church, like what could we do? And then he organized all of that to the exact moment where someone was hungry and needed mercy and they needed hope, and then we fed them. And he decided your prayers would be a part of that. Was your prayer ineffective? Of course not. Would God have done it anyway? That's the wrong question to ask. He chose to use, there is no anyway. He was going to use your prayers. 
So it's easy for us to think, well, God's going to do what he wants to do. Well, you know what God wants to do? He wants to use your prayers. And he used them. And he continues to use them. So that's why you got this week's action. Foolishly pray big prayers this week. There's ones that you don't want to pray because you just don't think they're going to happen. Big prayers. Like, I'm 85 years old and can't have a baby type prayers. I'm not necessarily praying for you to have a baby. I'm just saying those kind of prayers that look impossible to be done unless God's done it. Those kind of prayers. Those kind of prayers. What will God do? Whatever he is willed to do with your prayers. He may have willed for you to pray that, not do it, but to teach you greater dependence. He may have taught you, okay, uh, Gordon, that prayer was kind of silly. Let me focus more on this area and then guide your prayers into other big prayers. But God didn't redeem you so you could pray tiny prayers. He didn't redeem you so you could pray for things that are going to happen anyway. He redeemed you for you to pray large prayers. Now, here's a, a story to wrap us up, and I'm going to be a little sensitive with the details. It was a tough week at the Duncan household as the stomach death flu swung through our house. Some of you experienced it, and the details are going to be really light. If you've ever experienced that, anyone ever experienced, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, yes, and so hey, buy dollar store trash cans for this purpose. My house is lit, and they, they just go away. I ha- that's Anyway, side note. Now, there's a moment in my prayers where I go, dear God, no, 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 do it. Dear God, no, 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 no. And at some point in time, you resign yourself and go, please, please, please. You know what I'm talking about? So that was me. I don't like that kind of weakness, right? My, my body's a microchip. I don't, like, I don't want that to happen to me, right? I'm like, so that was that moment, like, God, no, 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 no. And then the only release and mercy I would have is to get it done with. Dear God, please, let this thing run its course, please. Whatever you got to do, just be done with it, right? I was unaware that the stomach flu was such a good picture of our prayer lives. Because we pray so fearfully. And most of our prayers are like, God, I don't want this to happen. Don't let this happen. Don't let this happen. Hey, pray those prayers. I'm not going to discourage any of you. Those are faithful prayers. Because we're really scared about what God's going to do. And we see a hard road ahead and we don't want to have it, right? We don't want to have the conversation we got to have. We don't want to have to have the thing at work. We don't, I mean, all this. But at some point in time, when you run yourself to the end of your own will, then you just go, God, please do this. Just, just do it. And that's what I want for you, church. So get all those, dear God, please don't prayers out of your system. Just go ahead and do it. But at some point in time, we realize that God's desire for us is for good. It may take us down a difficult path or a hard path, but he's glorified when we just finally go, God, whatever you think is best. I'm going to pray for this. You've got to change my prayers. If they're wrong, God, do this. God has worked. We've seen this in Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see God do great things for this. In these next two sermons about uh, the prayers surrounding Christmas, I think we're going to really be taught lessons. We've got to have the kind of discipline to, to pray daily as a church and pray united as a church praying that God's going to do good things through it as we prepare for another year. Friends, I remind you every year, God doesn't mark calendars like we do. Like January 1st, nothing changes for God. But the calendar changes for us. 
And so God uses these human institutions to remind us. So as you head into a new year, now is the time for us to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, how might I change my disciplines in the new year? Let's bow our heads and let's pray that God will work through all this. Father, we're going to prayerfully pray some foolish prayers this week. Some big old prayers. And, and some of them uh, are, are truly foolish. But Father, I know that as we approach you, I pray that you would give us great gifts of faith. I pray that we would expand our prayers for what you're doing in our life. I pray that you would expand your prayers for what you're doing in this church, at the YMCA, in the community, in the world. Father, thank you so much. Father, none of this would have been able without Jesus Christ arriving through this work of John the Baptist. His grace, his mercy, his life, his death and resurrection enable us to pray. Father, Gabriel isn't our intercessor. No man is our intercessor. Jesus Christ goes before the throne. Thank you that our prayers are taken to you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.